0: One of the greatest internal dangers that a church, is, any church, faces, is that it allows itself to make assessments and judgments according to worldly thinking and worldly values. When its members start to evaluate things by considering the kind of expectations that men and women have in things outside of the Christian faith. And instead of leaving those things outside, they bring them in through the front door. One example would be uh, many books that you can read about church growth and outreach, which are mainly a mishmash of techniques and strategies drawn from the world of business and marketing. There are many much better books on those subjects, of course, as well. In Paul's day, there were a group of men known as the sophists. These were men who engaged in public philosophical debate. The best of these men were in great demand. They were invited to speak at organized events. They could command very high fees for their attendance. What was notable about these men... Was that it wasn't merely what they had to say, it was the way they were able to say it. They were skilled orators. They were able to carry along and sway their audience. They had great stage presence. They were weighty. They had bearing. They honed their voices. They would carry themselves in a certain manner, their body language projecting and reinforcing further their arguments. They were skilled wordsmiths. They had finely crafted phrases. It wasn't just about the argument, it was about the man. Now, it's not that a Christian minister should not or cannot have some of those things. It's about not allowing yourself to be deceived into various wrong conclusions. Thinking that if a man has these things, then that must mean he is the genuine article. That if a man does not have those kinds of things, then he must not be worth listening to. That's the kind of emphasis that's entered into the Corinthian church. These kinds of things that the world esteems, that the world thinks important, the church has started to esteem, and the church has started to believe is important. And if you don't have those kinds of things, ah, no, no, no. The focus has become the man at the front, not the man on the cross. That's the problem. And Paul returns to address this issue in chapter 10. We're going to consider three things. First of all, in the opening two verses, we're going to consider the deriding that comes against Paul. Because they're constantly trying to undermine him. Because he's their main obstacle. If they can remove him, then their own position is secure. And he's constantly being derided and brought down. Many shots have been fired at Paul by these men. Many accusations have been levelled against him. Here's another. He's a big man when he writes to you. But when he arrives in person... He's a nobody. He's brave and bold in his letters when he's miles away. But when he comes to preach, dear, oh dear, what a letdown. That's what they're saying. Walking according to the flesh is a phrase that's used here. It's used at the end of verse 2, walking according to the flesh. Now, that can mean several things in the Bible. It can mean walking according to your sinful flesh, your sinful nature, the way that we all are as we are born. Living your life as the unsaved, sinful man or woman that you are from birth. It can mean that. Conforming your life to the sinful patterns of the world because you yourself are a sinner. Walking according to the flesh can mean that. In verse 2, it could mean that. could be that's what they're actually saying about Paul. They're painting him out to be a devious man with questionable motives. Maybe this man isn't even a Christian. It could also simply refer to the way that Paul's opponents are trying to portray him as a man who sounds great on paper... But when he stands in front of you, what a pathetic sight. Compared to these sophist types, because that's the thing that's kind of uh, the the, the must-have of their day, compared, compared with them, with all of these glorious qualities and abilities in the flesh, Paul really is a very poor contender. Why would you entertain the likes of him? You see, the Corinthians, in some part, have been deceived into judging things according to the outward appearance, verse 7. And the reality is that Paul's bodily presence is weak, verse 10. And his speech, his oratorical skill is contemptible it doesn't stand up to comparison with some of these other people if it's down to the flesh if the power in preaching is according to the flesh if it is Paul is the last man you want to have in your pulpit if it is but of course it isn't it isn't That's what these some in the church in verse 2, some have been saying about him. Now Paul begins to explain. When he was with them in person, he was meek, he was gentle. As an apostle directly and personally appointed by Christ, Paul is a man of supreme authority in the church. But he didn't arrive in Corinth wielding a big stick. He was meek. He held his authority under restraint and under self-control. That's what meekness is. He was humble and gentle, actually just like Christ. Indeed, he says, it's the very meekness and gentleness of Christ in him. Such is the life of a saved Sinner, Paul says, is not he, for me to live is Christ. It's that very gentleness and meekness that you saw in the life of Christ that I was living out when I was present with you. So for ourselves, we think, well, remember how Jesus was in the Gospels with those who were earnest in their seeking after him. Nicodemus, Zacchaeus, Jairus, the woman with the flow of blood, the Samaritan woman at the well, The woman who was caught in adultery. The woman washing and kissing his feet in the house of the Pharisee. The lepers who would cry out to him for mercy. The man lowered down through the roof by his four friends. The Roman centurion whose servant was dying and on and on goes the list. Meekness and gentleness flowed out from the Saviour. He's been Paul's pattern. He must be mine. He must be yours. That's how Paul was when he first came to Corinth. That how, that's how he's writing to them now. But earlier, because of how urgent and serious things have been previously, he'd had to write earlier letters to them with an unusual boldness, a real bluntness a real forthrightness the kind of language perhaps that they'd never really heard from him before the kind of attitude almost that they've never perhaps really seen in him and there are some who if he's ever in Corinth again are going to get the shock of their lives to discover just how bold and forthright he can be in person He hopes not to have to be like that with the rest of the congregation, but there are some. There are some. They're going to get both barrels from Paul when he arrives. You see, when the gospel is under threat, and when Christ's church is under attack, and when the gospel of Christ is under attack, Paul becomes a changed man. He turns into a lion with claws extended. Just like Jesus did actually. When he confronted some of the religious leaders of the day. When he drove out the traders from the temple courtyard with a whip in his hand. Not so meek and gentle that day. But for the most part, meekness and gentleness... And this is Paul, you see. Nothing with which to impress in terms of the things of the flesh. Nothing at all. If that's what you're looking for, well, go home and watch Britain's Got Talent. Well, well, actually, maybe not, but you know what I mean. Because you won't find it here. No one's claiming that here. even of Jesus it said in Isaiah that he had no form or comeliness or beauty that people might desire him there was nothing about Jesus the man in terms of his flesh that was impressive nothing meekness and gentleness yet ferocious when the truth and the church and Christ are threatened that's true gospel ministry and that should be the life of believers meekness gentleness but when the truth is under threat when Christ is under threat when the church is under threat bold bold courageous And as Paul continues, secondly, he opens us up to the real battle. The real battle that he faces as a gospel minister. The battle that every Christian faces in seeking to live a Christian life and and being an ambassador of Christ and a witness yourself, wherever you may be. The real battle, verses 3 to 6. We do walk according to the flesh, but we don't war according to the flesh. Whether you like it or not, Christian believer, you're in a battle. Yes, when you became a Christian, you became a child of God, but you also became a soldier. Yes, you were adopted into God's family, but you were also enlisted into his army. (laughs) Now, the goals that preaching set out to achieve cannot be won and cannot be gained by means of fleshly things. There is no skill, no talent, no learning, no insight, no ability, no aptitude, no program, no technique, no set of arguments that any man or woman possesses or can employ that will accomplish that which gospel preaching sets out to accomplish. We walk in the flesh. That which is carnal. The flesh can just mean These earthly bodies that we're in. And we walk in the flesh because this is all we have in that sense. But Paul says we don't war according to the flesh. God sees fit to employ these fleshly bodies of ours in gospel work. But our fleshly bodies have no power. Our weapons are mighty in God. Now, we've been looking at this a little, haven't we, in our evening series the last few Sundays in making Christ known. Preaching. The work of the Holy Spirit. The place of prayer. Let me just remind you, back in 1 Corinthians, what did Paul write there in that opening chapter when he wrote this previous letter to the Corinthian church? Well, we read there in the opening chapter from verse 18, these words of the apostle the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing so as we preach the gospel for those people who are not accepting it or receiving it it just seems a load of nonsense to them but to us who are being saved it is the power of God so this same message in one person's ear sounds like utter foolishness but to the other it's the power of God and saves them Verse 20, where is the wise, where's the scribe, where's the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of the world, God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God that through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. It's not for us to try and make the gospel sound clever. In the ear of the unbeliever, it will sound foolish. And it's not our job to try and make it sound less foolish. Because it's that same foolish message which God uses to save those who are to be saved. It's not by the flesh. What did Paul say earlier in this second letter to the Corinthians? At chapter 6 and verse 7. By the word of truth. By the word of truth. Now back in verse 4 he says, In all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And he gives a whole load of things that that involves. By the word of truth, by the power of God. By the word of truth, by the power of God. That's how this battle is fought. We proclaim the truth... And God works in his mighty power. That's the battle that we're in. And that's how Paul fights this battle. I stand and declare the things that God has given me to declare. But there's another thing happening which is not of me. God is working through the declaration of these truths. You see, it's a spiritual battle in which only God can wield any effective power. And only he can achieve any kind of victory because it's a spiritual battle in the hearts and minds of people. And it says here, it pulls down strongholds, casts down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Now, what's Paul talking about here? Well, to understand what he's talking about, first, look at the end of verse 5. What is the result? Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's the result of pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. When God has done that, what you're left with is every thought brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's the result. So ask yourself, who is this true of? When God does this, when God pulls down strongholds and casts down arguments, who is that true of? Who is it talking about? Let me ask you a question. Who has their thought... Brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Who? Well, it can't be Satan and the demonic world. They have knowledge of Christ, but they'll never be obedient to him. So it can't be speaking of that. It's not talking about governments. It's not talking about organizations. It's not talking about institutions or movements in the world the strongholds and the arguments and the things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of god that's you and that's me in our sin it is come with me to paul's letter to the romans for a moment let's we've, we've looked at this not that long ago in romans chapter 1 starting at verse 18 The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, (coughs) sinful men and women, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. They are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. They became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's what they've done. These are the strongholds. These are the arguments. These are the things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. They've set up their... They've rejected the truth that they know is there and they've set up their own worldview. Now, it's true that sinners club together in these things, in their sin, in the world of philosophy, in the world of science, as we were considering last night, in commerce, in politics, in education. Sinners lost in that condition that Paul describes in chapter 1 of Romans, they club together. En masse, Sometimes in an organized way. What do they do? They deny God. They deny and reject his existence. They deny and reject his truth. They deny and reject Christ. They deny and reject the gospel. They deny and reject his moral law. They deny and reject his designs for life and society. They do it individually and sometimes they club together and do it collectively. But... That's what it is. It's, it's the sinful heart. Individually and together, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They follow after the lusts of their hearts, be it power, be it money, be it pleasure, whatever. They dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. They exchange the truth of God for the lie to worship themselves instead of worshiping and serving God that's what they do and these are like fortresses they're like strongholds set up to repel God and every individual sinner has this fortress and stronghold in their own heart and in their own soul I will not have this God to reign over me thank you very much that's it They have all their arguments. All their supposed proofs. And with what arrogance. And high mindedness. Do people set themselves up. Against the living God. And in the face of all this. What has God called us to do. Make Christ known. Declare the gospel. Proclaim God's truth. And what is it that happens. When we. In the weakness of our flesh, make Christ known and God moves in mighty power. What happens? Romans chapter 6, verse 17. God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin. You became slaves of righteousness. Make me a captive, Lord, then I shall be free. Verse 22 of Romans 6. Now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Set free from the captivity of sin to become a captive and slave of Christ, to obey the doctrine of the gospel, to become a slave of righteousness. Now that sounds an awful lot like bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, to me. Because it is the same. We use the clear passages of scripture to explain the not so clear bringing every thought of lost men and women into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We're not called to try and overthrow governments or organisations or cartels or institutions. There's no example of that in the New Testament. We preach the gospel to men and women, to boys and girls, wherever and whenever we can. This is gospel ministry. We're weak. We have no power. The gospel message will be just foolishness to everyone who rejects it. But it is the power of God to each one who believes and who is gloriously saved and brought under the lordship and kingship of Jesus Christ as their minds are renewed to obedience. Now Paul is getting to the very core of Christian ministry. That's the battle. That's the battle. And it's God who wins the victories. He just uses this simple flesh, like me and you. Tell people of Christ, and God will work in mighty power. And then finally, Paul talks in the rest of this chapter about the evidence of victories won. The evidence of victories won. Because they're, they're, they're trying to totally discredit him as a gospel minister. Paul has been used by God to win many of these victories that he's been describing. God has worked so wonderfully and powerfully through this man who is just his servant. The battles have sometimes been very fierce. Warfare's a tough business, isn't it? The battles have been fierce for Paul sometimes. He has the scars to show for it. He's got emotional scars to show for it. He's got physical scars to show for it. Paul's back must have looked like a ploughed field. But victories have been won. Because God's been at work. Now Paul is actually making some very simple points during the remainder of this chapter. The Corinthian church has been duped into getting caught up with the celebrity and personality of these new self-appointed teachers. And they've been fooled into thinking that the outward appearance and all of the gimmickry and style and eloquence and the impressive presence of these preachers, that's what commends them. That's what is confirming them as gospel preachers. And in assessing these different teachers, they're simply rating one against the other. And these men are being used as their own standard against which they're all being assessed, rather than having a fixed external rule, as we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3 on Wednesday about the qualifications for elders. Now, God has established. The rule God has established the qualification God has established uh, what it means to be a gospel minister and what that looks like you're not to compare yourself amongst each other you're to compare yourself against the scripture but they're just being compared against each other in this unholy mess no wonder things are declining in the Corinthian church it's a bit like in football. When a team seems to be doing really well in their own league, and they've come top of their league for the last three seasons. But what no one has realised is that the standard in that league has gradually been declining. But that team keeps winning. So everyone thinks it's great. They're still the best in the league. But the league actually has been on the slide for years and no one's noticed. And then they play play a team from another league in another country and they get absolutely slaughtered. And the truth is laid bare. Because they've just been comparing themselves amongst themselves. And compared amongst themselves, they seem great. But then Barcelona come along and absolutely thrash them. Because they haven't been comparing themselves against the right standard, you see. You need an You need an external standard that sets the bar, don't you? Not just comparing yourselves amongst each other. That's no good. And the other issue here is that these men who've come in, they're going around piggybacking on the labours of others. These men haven't planted churches where previously there was no church, like Paul has done. And wants to continue doing. No these are men who parachute in. After Paul's left. And try and take over. And claim all the glory for it. Imagine if reports started coming back. That I was making all kinds of claims. For myself. About Belvedere Road Church. And when you hear it. Especially some of you old ones. Who have been around for a while. You think hang on. Hang on. It was Pastor Olliot who did that. Ian wasn't even in the church when all that took place. What would you think of me? Alarm bells would be ringing in your head about me, and rightly so. Who does he think he is? What's he up to? What's his game? Claiming all these things that he had nothing to do with. That's not right. Now, men, of course, do follow on from previous pastors. That's inevitable. And no one could be another Stuart Olliot. The very first decision I ever took when I was asked if I would go full-time in the church is I'm not going to even try to be another Stuart Olliot. What a foolish thing that would be. No one could be another Keith Underhill in Trinity in Nairobi. Morungi's a very different man. But, but, cut from the same cloth, spiritually and biblically, that's the issue. Cut from the same cloth. Now the problem is these men who've entered the Corinthian church are not cut from the same cloth as Paul. That's the problem. And what does Paul say in response? Well he says, remember verse 7 that we are Christ just like you are. Our claim to new birth and to salvation and to belief And to faith in Christ. It's exactly the same as yours, and it's as genuine as yours is. You, the rest of you, not these some in the church, but the rest of you, you're cut from the same cloth as us, aren't you? And you know you are. That's what Paul is saying. You know my testimony. You know how God in Christ called me and what he's called me to do. How much more I could say and be justified in saying it to press home that point, verse 8, which, let me remind you, was given to me so that I might edify you and never pull you down. If I really said all that could be said about the authority that I have as an apostle, I could terrify you as it dawned upon you how much you've strayed. But bringing my terror upon you is not what I want to do. Remember, says Paul in verse 10, although these men are seeking to discredit me because of how unlike them I am and how unlikely a candidate I seem to be in their estimation, think on this, verse 11, that what we are in word is how we live and serve. You've seen us, you know us. And that's how we will be whenever we're with you. Which is more than can be said for these others. And we wouldn't even begin to try and compare ourselves against these other men. Verse 12. We wouldn't even start to try. What a futile thing that would be. Who wants to be like them? I'm not even going to begin to try and justify myself by using the measures that they use. Why would I? What I will do, verse 13, is point out to you what I have done as God has appointed me to the places where I should go and to the people to whom I should speak. That's what he means when he's talking about spheres and limits. The places God has sent me to and the people God has sent me to preach to. I'm asking you to remember what God did amongst you through me, in verses 14 to 16. It wasn't the work of another man that I'm claiming for myself. This was the work of God through me. It was the gospel that I preached to you by which you were saved. It was the Jesus that I opened up to you who is your Lord and Savior. It was God's truth which he revealed to you through me that I passed on to you. And it was that God who worked in you to produce all of these things. And it's seeing you being established in these things which fills us with hope and encouragement to press on into those regions beyond you where the gospel hasn't yet been and to do it all again. And as Paul continues to dissuade them away from this falsehood that over, that's overtaken them, he calls them to remember how it was That God used him amongst them. What it was that God did through his servant. That what Paul did amongst them is what lies at the core of gospel ministry. And that these things demonstrate that he is a minister approved and commended by God. These other men are simply trying to commend themselves based on their own claims. Comparing themselves against each other and pointing to things of outward appearance. No, look beyond that, says Paul. Think again. Think again. What happened amongst you when I came and preached and you became believers? So here in Paul is a man who God has placed there just as he's placed you where you are God has set spheres and limits for you your home your street your place of study your place of work your sphere of friends and acquaintances he's set spheres and limits for you just like he has for Paul and that's where he's called you to serve and witness and testify Paul's a man who puts no confidence in the flesh and neither must you and for most of us that's actually a relief isn't it phew well thank goodness for that because what have I got to offer well nothing much really have you have I but you see God is at work through his people it's what God is going to do that's the issue here's a man who understands the battle he's in and he understands what his weapons are and so must you the word of God declare the truth God God will win the victories it's a spiritual battle only he can win here is a man who knows that only as god attends the work in his mighty power will victories be won that's why we need to pray and if you likewise remain faithful god will use you to win his victories too Paul is a man who knows that trying to compare yourself to others in order to commend yourself is a worthless and vain pursuit. Living before God's all-seeing eyes, knowing that the Lord is pleased, acknowledging that it's all due to his mighty power. That's the only approval that will ever be worth anything. And as we give ourselves to these things, God will continue to call in his elect. Bringing the thoughts of each one into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And we will be a church who glories not in herself, but in the Lord.